0: Women taking the lead, episode 210.
1: Small confrontations typically prevent big confrontations. And the reason I think a lot of people are confrontation averse is because they've been only encountering big confrontations. So if you only ever encounter the big ugly ones where somebody tells you that they've been upset for a long time and that you've been dis- a disappointment, that's the kind of thing that sticks with you. But if somebody just brings up kind of casually after a meeting, like, Hey, maybe next time try to, you know, approach such and such this way, or Hey, I see that we didn't quite make our deadline. Like we really need to try harder to stick to that is a much easier conversation to have. So, you know, kind of like those micro adjustments are a little less painful. <laughs> Hello,
0: my name is Jody Flynn and welcome to Women Taking the Lead, where we are all about creating blasts of inspiration to help you overcome self-doubt so you can lead with confidence, integrity, and a sense of humor. Have you grabbed your copy of my best-selling book, Accomplished? How to Go from Dreaming to Doing? Head over to womentakingthelead.com forward slash accomplished to access the secrets to achievement and success. Now, Your future awaits, so let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm here with Erin Robbins, who has been working in analytics and marketing for the past 15 years for enterprises, agencies, and startups. She has lived around the country as well as internationally and currently calls Columbus, Ohio home. As Ginza Metrics president and COO, Erin helps lead product strategy, sales and marketing, and organizational operations. When she's not busy with Ginza, she's likely spending time with her bulldogs, enjoying a beer, or doing something active. Erin, I love it. Thank you so much for being with us. That's just a quick 10,000-foot version of who you are in the world. So if you could, tell us more about you and your own humble beginnings.
1: Yeah, so I mean I started out in Raleigh, North Carolina where I went to school in terms of work, but prior to that um I am from a family that moved around a lot. Uh the first uh, assumption is always military, but my dad actually designed golf courses. Um and so we kind of moved around and traveled around the world and I got to see a lot of really um kind of interesting things, but I also had kind of a, you know, different childhood in terms of not being in one place a lot. Um, So when I graduated college uh, at the time, the country was um, at what was going to be the start of a couple of pretty big recessions. Right. And I decided that I might want to be a lawyer after working for a couple of years. So I took the LSATs and moved to California to pursue a law degree. Um, I think after meeting some lawyers and um, going to kind of orientations and things, I realized I actually didn't want to continue down that path and found myself in a job that was paying me under $30,000 with a studio apartment that cost basically every penny I was making. Um, so I started working some additional jobs on the side, nothing glamorous, right? Cleaning up after events, editing copies, small time ghostwriting, anything I could get my hands on. Um, and things were really tight. And, uh, you know, I... I didn't know very many people when I first moved to San Francisco and with my family back on the East Coast, um, you know, there was a lot of moments of kind of eating peanut butter crackers, which is all I could afford uh, when money would run out a few days before the next paycheck would come in. That um, you know, I was really kind of questioning what it was that I would want for my career. So over, you know, probably about three to five years, I changed jobs um, a lot in retrospect and really tried to learn and keep up with technological changes and figure out where I wanted to go Um got involved with kind of uh, technology marketing and social media through, you know, agency work, through work at big enterprises, through work at smaller stuff. And it wasn't until I started working at startups um, and actually started creating technologies that were solving people's problems that I kind of really felt like I was where I needed to be.
0: Oh, my goodness. You know, Erin, I think a lot of people listening are going to relate to that windy journey. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of us has had where it's like, I'll try this. Well, maybe this. And, you know, unseen forces have taken me over here. So now I'll dabble. But one thing is always true is from what I've seen is there is no wasted time. Every next thing we, we draw on experiences we had in the past, probably even including your experiencing cleaning up after events. You probably learned a lot, <laughs> lot about people <laughs> from that experience. <laughs>
1: Go ahead. Things things I wanted to know and didn't want to know. Things that me. I think I want to just say more tolerant, right? Right,
0: right. Those moments where you're like, I I can't undo this. I can't unsee what I've just seen. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So but I love I love that you've definitely, you know, built a career, built a life for yourself and made it your own. And you know, and just from the chat we had before, and just starting off, like I love hearing you talk and can hear how confident you are and having really owned your journey. But I always like to start the guests off like, let's start with a low moment, right? Just for fun. <laughs> you
1: know?
0: And you made me choose just one <laughs> know, a plethora
1: of opportunities.
0: I know, I know the one like the all encompassing one, but you you and I and those listening know we are constantly facing these moments where we're playing small, it takes something to put yourself out there to stretch yourself to try the next thing. So, Erin, if you could share with us your playing small story, the one you chose and the lessons you've learned from it.
1: Yeah. I mean, so this happens in a lot of different markets, but I came from technology, um, which was a largely male-dominated industry, and I definitely found myself in some interesting circumstances in terms of how to navigate that situation while, um, you know, staying kind of true to myself. Right. And a lot of conversation happens around gender bias, um, and issues that prevent women from feeling like they can succeed. And I'll tell you like, that is an actual issue, not a myth, um, or an excuse for, for a lot of people. Um, and what I don't hear as much about that I'll talk about now is, um, women not always supporting women uh in these kind of more male dominated industries uh and that to me is something i'm really focused on changing so here's an example i was working for a mid-sized organization in silicon valley in my early 20s and one of the lowest people on the totem pole um naturally and uh kind of during my saltine cracker and and peanut butter years uh the owner of this organization was regularly seen kind of talking to people in the hallways and inviting people back to his office and there was a uh colleague of mine a female colleague um who's a bit above me in the organization, who regularly went to see him. And one day he invited me to his office after work. And he uh, made some comments that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And he continued to invite me there a few more times, talking about how much my career could advance and how fortunate I was to be in the role that I was in. And I uh, kind of ignored his advances and found excuses to be busy uh, when he would invite me to come and chat. And the, uh, the woman who had previously kind of been a regular in his office unfortunately decided um, that I think maybe – uh, she missed the attention and told people that I had been trying to use my looks to advance my uh, status in the organization um, and made some comments that were not only untrue, uh, but, you know, kind of protected someone who I felt like for all intents and purposes was kind of harassing his employees. Um, so instead of standing up for myself and fighting for what I thought was right and confronting both my female colleague and my superior, um, I took another job and a job that wasn't even what I wanted because I was in a hurry to get out of an uncomfortable situation. Um, and I thought that no one would listen because of my junior level in the organization. And I felt like the deck was kind of stacked against me. But in hindsight, uh, that was really no excuse not to do the right thing and not to call attention to an issue and not just for myself, but because there may have been others who also felt the same way. Um, and so I really felt like what I learned was, you know, size or uh, stature is not a determinant of doing the right thing and doing what you think is appropriate uh, for yourself and for your organization. Um, and, you know, that's been kind of something that I've, I've tried to Stick with ever since.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Erin. I've I've really come to understand that sexism is a cultural issue, not a gender issue, um, because women are can be just as guilty of sexism as men. Um, and your story really captures that. And I I've also you know, heard of experiences where women had sexually harassed a man um, and made men feel uncomfortable. And really what sexism is, or any ism, is really a power play. Whenever there's a struggle for power, these isms can crop up. Um, and it, I, I really acknowledge you for, for looking back and thinking about like, wow, well, if I'd stayed, could I have made a change from the inside? You know, and, and that's really tough. It's a tough call because I know a lot of people, when faced with those situations, it's so uncomfortable, right? It, it's it's not a good place to be. So your first instinct is to get out, you know. And I know people who were like, I just didn't have it in me. It was it was all they could do to just get by day to day, feeling uncomfortable. That their their first thing was to move on, um, and it takes something to stay on the inside and make change from the inside.
1: And I think that we all have this kind of, uh, you know, we've heard stories about, you know, what happens when you are a whistleblower or bring things to light and how people may feel about that. And at the end of the day, I mean, even if it wouldn't have actually changed anything, I'll never know if anything would have changed because I didn't stay. Right. So, you know, that is one of those things. And the the only good I see in something like that was I do believe it taught me a lesson. I do believe it helped me make better choices in the future. And I do believe that sharing things like that is kind of the responsibility that you have when you learn an important lesson like that, which is, Hey, you don't, you don't have to go, you don't have to stay either, but what you should do is you should try, um, Mm. or you should, you know, you should make an effort. Right. Make a difference before you go. (laughs) At the very least. Yep. Nice.
0: (laughs) Now, Erin, I'd love for you to share another story with us. And this one is about uh, a wake up call or an aha moment, a light bulb going off, you know, some realization that occurs. And for some people, it's instantaneous. For others, it's a slow dawning. But in either case, there is a moment where you're ready to take action. So if you could share with us what led up to that moment and then the steps you took that led to your success.
1: Sure. Okay. So um, I hate, you know, that's so so funny. It's like all these stories kind of maybe make me mention something negative, but I do like that, you know, it all leads to something positive. So I worked for an agency a number of years ago where I had the fortune to work with some great colleagues and amazing clients, but the misfortune to have a truly terrible boss. And I think we've all been there, right? Like, I mean, Chances are, if you've been around for a while, you've had to work with or for someone that you were like, this is just not a a good situation. So having had some incredible bosses over the years, I felt really torn in what direction I should take because I actually did know the difference between having really great management and leadership and people to help me um, in my career and not. So after repeated attempts to figure out what to do to please her, um started to feel futile and just got frustrating because I felt like I was on this treadmill and that the speed kept being turned up, but I wasn't going anywhere. So like it just felt like things were getting harder and harder with no actual momentum. Um, and she seemed irked by those who were trying to make real headway. Um, and there's a lot of praise given to kind of the status quo. So a specific instance um, is where the team I led um, – had won a large client for the agency and the work we did um, had actually received some accolades, some public recognition and it was really a great day for everyone, right? The the new client and the recognition was only going to better the entire organization and the owners of the company were thrilled. So later that day at a company meeting, she kind of glossed over the win and the, the work my team had done entirely um, and added it simply as a bullet point in a deck and then instead focused on the new ideas around note-taking that another team had proposed saying how she loved innovation in productivity the most. Um, And I, I really feel like I stayed longer than I should have um, because I really loved a lot of people I worked with and um, I really enjoyed working with the clients I had. And I ended up moving on to a different position and I reflected back on something my, my father had told me when I first started working, which is that your only real like job at your job is to make, your organization and your superiors look good. And it doesn't mean that he didn't mean it in like a subservient kind of a way. He meant it in a if everybody's acting in the best interest of everybody else, then like what you're supposed to be trying to do is support the ideals of the people um, who are helping determine strategy. And he always said that it was more important to like your direct manager than it was to like necessarily like the CEO or the head of your company. Right. Because that person is supposed to be the person who is your champion for accomplishing your goals and your tasks, who's supposed to be helping you understand your role in your organization and grow your career and make sure that, you know, you understand what it is and how you're contributing to those specific goals of your organization. And I think that what that really taught me was how I wanted to be as a manager, what I wanted to be able to give to people and how I wanted to make people feel when they accomplish something when their team accomplished something as a more inclusive, we all win together. We all lose together. You didn't lose. We lost or like you didn't win your win is a contribution to this organization. And we appreciate that.
0: Mm, I love that, Aaron. And I love how you captured both sides of it. Cause that, that has, has rung true for me that as an employee, like I definitely saw my job as my job was to have my boss win. Right. To make them look good. You know, and if I did that, I was doing my job. And, and by having that attitude, um, I actually was promoted very quickly because doing what it took to have my boss look good was exactly what I needed to do that had me look good too. And it had my boss be very appreciative. Uh, But on the flip side of things as a manager, and I love how you captured this, whenever we have a a bad experience with the boss, it's like it becomes hardwired in us that we automatically, you know, come from a place of, I want to make sure nobody else ever feels this way. (laughs) Right? (laughs) and it's like our guiding principle for how we we lead our team is to make sure that we never create that experience for them. And so then it becomes a symbiotic relationship is if as an employee your job is to have your boss win and if as your as a boss your job is to make sure your team has the best experience like i can't imagine a better workplace to be in when when all of that is
1: happening. Even when things are going wrong, things are still at it's basic level going to go right. Um, because people are acting in what's probably the most, uh, altruistic and best interest of everybody. Uh, and I think that, you know, like you're right. You don't want anybody else to feel that way because I know that people always say you can't take things personally, but really when you're, when you are trying to focus on making your organization and your boss look good, um, you do take it personally when those efforts seem to go unrecognized or seem to be rebuffed and you start to feel, I mean, the only real word for it is rejection, right? Mm-hmm. Because all of your attempts feel to go uh, unrecognized, unnoticed or unappreciated. And I think that rejection is something that we don't talk about a lot in the workforce. We talk about it in relationships and interpersonal things, but people don't talk about how rejection in the workforce can really be a factor. And I think that as women, we might be more okay with talking about it and probably... It's seen to be like a softer thing to bring up, but it's really not. I mean, people feel rejection and it makes them lash out or it makes them crave power. Um, you know, it causes a lot of really ugly feelings when you start to feel rejected.
0: Yeah, it, it can really sting. And especially when you consider the workplace is where you spend most of your waking hours during the week. You know, so that's a lot of time to be in an environment where you're not feeling appreciated. You, you like you, your best is never good enough, that sort of thing. And I love how your story also captured because like there have been studies done that people actually want to be appreciated more than they want to get a bump in pay. Would they yep. reject the bump in pay? No. No. They'll take it. People will take money that they'll say they'll want money, but people will leave a job where they're unappreciated faster than they will leave a job where they don't feel like they're making enough money.
1: I mean, that's a that's a definite truth. And I mean, my work at Ginza Metrics is uh, a really good example of that. I truly feel um, like I am appreciated for I mean, not necessarily all day, every day. It's a startup. And, you know, we we are at the grind, but I definitely feel like my organization appreciates what uh, what I put into it. And I feel like I work very hard at thanking people regularly, almost overly thankful at times. Um, but I do want especially when you work in a you know kind of geographically diverse workforce, I think it's really important to make sure that people understand because you don't pass them in the hallways and get those opportunities. Um, that you use whatever your messaging system and email system is to to show recognition and appreciation.
0: Yeah. And this is a great segue, because the next thing I wanted to ask you about was your leadership style, because I think where a lot of people, I think women especially can get hung up is we see somebody who's been successful and we automatically it's natural and intuitive. We want to emulate that person. But without thinking about do we share the same values? Do we have the same personality type? Do we share the same strengths? because your leadership style is best served when it is an authentic expression of you. So
1: Erin, how would you describe your leadership style? I am direct. Uh, (laughs) Anyone that's ever worked with me for me um, will tell you that it comes with its good and bad sides, obviously, but I firmly believe that people should know where they stand. And obviously, that's not something that works necessarily for every person or in every organization, depending on structure. Um, But this really means I don't believe in giving reviews once a year with some sort of shocking feedback that the person had no idea was coming. Um, I try to give people commentary or feedback, both positive and kind of coaching feedback on a regular basis so that my team members know where they are, um, you know, whether it's meeting or exceeding expectations or where there might be room to improve. And I expect the same back from them. Um, you know, nobody as a, as a manager, um, or a leader wants someone to come in and quit and say, Hey, I've been unhappy actually for the last six months and you had no idea. Right. So kind of that managing up. I, I'd i like to know if somebody's unhappy incrementally or as those feelings arise so that I can try to put things in place that will make improvements on my end as well. Um, and not only am I direct, I'm, I'm pretty casual in my conversation style. I've been working really hard to not use swear words while we're on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so overly formal communication with my team isn't really my preferred way of interacting. Um, and I expect people to come and speak to me pretty frankly when, you know, when they have issues or or just want to talk. Um, I'm also sarcastic and a a bit intense. Um, So I know that my kind of intensity is not necessarily for everyone. I'm really emphatic. I tend to speak with my hands a lot and wildly gesticulate, uh, if you've ever seen me speak somewhere, it's totally true. They kind of have to like glue me to the podium, um, or else I'll knock something over. Uh, and I also think that, so one of the things we were touching on early, but it's also part of my leadership style, um, is giving people opportunities to grow. I think it's, uh, something that was really great in terms of my opportunity here. Uh, and it's something that we're a big proponent of at Ginza metrics, um, is that, if you want to tackle a new responsibility or learn additional skills, we want to foster that growth. Like I started at Ginza as a marketing director and I'm now president and COO, which I think is a really great example to the people that we hire that the only limits here are those that you set for yourself. Um, And I, I think that when it comes to leadership, as long as someone is, so obviously I wouldn't say that if you're not getting your existing job done, I want you to go focus on some other skill set, right? Because that's counterproductive. Like you need to be exceeding or meeting the goals that you currently have for the role that you were hired for. But if you want to grow and you want to do something else, people should not be trying to stop you. Mm
0: -hmm. And what I loved in what you said, Erin, too, is like as much as some people like dread confrontation, you know, in those direct conversations, what they dread even more is to find out they've been screwing up months later right? To find out they've been disappointing people, not meeting expectations, and nobody clued them into it. That's what they dread more.
1: (laughs) You know, and that's so true. And I find that to be true in uh, business relationships, in interpersonal relationships, in romantic relationships is, I actually, it's funny because I am super direct and pretty intense. I, I think people believe that I like confrontation and I only think there's a very small percentage of people who actually enjoy confrontation because you have to be a bit of a sadist. (laughs) But, um, you know, I don't like confrontation either. I always get nervous when I have to confront somebody and give them news that I know that they're not going to want to hear. Right. Like I don't take any sort of sick pleasure or uh, excitement out of having to do that, um, but what I will say is small confrontations typically prevent big confrontations. And the reason I think a lot of people are confrontation averse is because they've been only encountering big confrontations. So if you only ever encounter the big ugly ones where somebody tells you that they've been upset for a long time and that mm-hmm. you've been dis- a disappointment, that's the kind of thing that sticks with you. But if somebody just brings up kind of casually after a meeting, like, Hey, maybe next time try to, you know, approach such and such this way, or Hey, I see that we didn't quite make our deadline. Like we really need to try harder to stick to that is a much easier conversation to have. So, you know, kind of like those micro adjustments are a little less painful. Yeah,
0: say something right away before it's a big deal, right? Yes, love that, Aaron. And Aaron, what's one thing that you're working on right now that you're really excited about?
1: Uh, trying to make more sense of people's marketing spend through like better analytics, research and content. I'm really excited about what we can do with not just like more data, but better data analysis. Mm-hmm. So historically, there's been kind of a black hole between what companies understood about where their money or efforts were going and what they actually were getting for the investment. So I think that giving people better insight starts with helping them understand what's working and not, and then kind of really showing them the information side by side um, and then they can actually use recommendations to make smarter improvements and allocate their money where the money is going to make the most difference or their resources or time, right? Which is at, at some point all money, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. So your company makes sense of the data too.
1: Yep. That is where we're headed. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Because, you know, I love numbers. I love analytics. But if there's too much and I can't make sense of it, it's like shut down. Like Google Analytics, when I first dove into that, I was like, I don't even know
1: <laughs> where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just looks like Einstein's brain kind of dumped all over page, And you're like, what just happened here?
0: <laughs> right. And what do I do about it? I don't even know what to yeah. do about this. That's awesome. <laughs> and on the flip side of things, Aaron, what would you say is the biggest leadership or business challenge that you're currently facing?
1: So we have a lean team that's distributed around the globe and we have to communicate across time zones, languages and cultural differences to meet the needs of also an extremely diverse customer base and, uh, as well as workforce. So coupled with being kind of a lean organization without redundancy in positions, we actually count on everyone to pull their weight and sometimes a little more to communicate well and to be a conscientious team player. Um, and I can just tell you that, you know, that, that does provide a struggle sometimes.
0: I don't even know how you do it. That's more coffee. <laughs> what are some of the approaches approaches you have, especially for people who, you know, they speak different languages and they're in t- different time zones? So when you connect, you might not be at your best. They might not be at their best. Like, what are what are some of the strategies you you've incorporated for that?
1: I often try to warn people when I'm a glass of scotch or a glass of wine in, like, hey, you're probably getting, you know, like, <laughs> after a certain time, Erin. Uh, you know, I, we use Slack and we try to communicate and we have channels and rooms set up for a variety of different conversations. I will say that, you know, like eventually what you get is like 7,000 Slack rooms and channels set up, um, which gets to be a little bit cumbersome. So trying to, um, you know, really narrow that down into the most, uh, important set of things, uh, is really important. I think that communication between, uh, I think every, the thing that's important, especially when you have a smaller team, right, is everybody's ideas and input is really important. And so you never want to make it sound like there's like necessarily a leader of the team. But what we try to do is we have certain people who are responsible for aggregating and leaving handoffs. So I think that what really helps us is everybody does a check in and a check out. Um, and so you can go in and read like a two sentence summary of what it was that their day looked like or what it is they're going to be working on during that day. So that if you sign in, um, at the beginning, middle or end of somebody else's, uh, kind of shift, I guess is what you would maybe call it. But, um, you can really kind of get a quick idea of what's going on, which is really a time saver.
0: Nice. I love that. All right, every now we're going to do a quick leadership roundup. So tell us what is one practice you have that helps to make you a better leader?
1: I try to learn to do the things that I ask of others um, around me. Um, so being a working manager, I think it's important to try to have some understanding of what all it is that you're requiring other people to do. Um, and coupled with that, the the converse side is um, knowing what you don't know. So I need, I think it's important to, understand the roles of your team. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you can do everything they can. That would be impossible um, in large organizations or as you reach the top. And it would also mean that, you know, that may not even be uh, like you're not probably the best person to do everything. But you can at least understand the core functions, challenges and needs so that you can actually help make the most strategic and beneficial recommendations as a leader in an organization. Um, And then when you really start to think about and understand Knowing what you don't know, uh, you start to learn how to place more trust in the people that you hire to fill those gaps and understand, you know, really the importance of working with people that you trust to know what you don't know. Um, Because when you start to feel like you're not sure if they're actually taking care of things and then you're trying to check in behind them, but it's in an area that you don't really feel is a specialization, I think that causes a lot of stress and friction hmm.
0: I had Andrea Goulet on um, from Corgi Bites, who had said that, you know, as as the president or as the executive of the organization, your job is not to do the work, but it's to know what's going on and do the research so you can make thoughtful decisions that are for the best of your team. And so true. I, I was like, boom, right there. That is absolutely true. You just have to be in the know. And that takes a lot of time. If you got bogged down in the day to day work, you would not be able to make Make those thoughtful decisions. Perfect. And Erin, what advice would you give your younger self?
1: Oh, man, it's probably the advice I still give myself. So like younger self, as in 10 minutes ago, but also 10 years ago, <laughs> uh, which is probably to have more balance, right? To make time for family, friends, healthy practices, exercise. As I've gotten older, I really tried to make more time for yoga and running and friends and family. Um, And not just because I feel like I worked too hard when I was younger. I actually think it's because I really feel more productive and clear thinking during working time. Um, If I don't just push to work 24 seven, so because my company is a global organization, I often work at really odd hours or longer hours um, than kind of a typical, uh, maybe like a nine to five job. But that means that I also have to focus on getting up in the afternoon and saying like, hey, I need to take a few minutes. I need to get away. I need to rebalance and readjust. Mm
0: -hmm. Now share with us a success quote or a mantra and why it has meaning for you.
1: Okay. So it's opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. And that's Thomas Edison. Um, and I think it has meaning for me today because there's a lot of stuff that nobody wants to do or likes to do, or thinks is like not part of their job. And at the end of the day, everything is part of your job, right? Um, you know, the success of your organization is your job and whether it was written expressly in a, uh, you know, productivity outline or a hiring document or whatever. doesn't really mean anything. I'll tell you really quickly. A fun anecdote is we had some businessmen coming in town from out of the country one time for Ginza, and I'd only been there for a few months. And uh, we'd just gotten this new office and the plumbing backed up and their toilet was overflowing onto the floor. And these businessmen were getting in an elevator and coming upstairs. And I was literally mopping the bathroom floor uh, and cleaning up. Uh, Up until the moment they were knocking on the door to come into the office. And was it my job to clean the bathroom floor? No. But is it my job to make the organization look successful and capable? Yes. So that meant mopping the bathroom floor.
0: (laughs) That's a great story. So true. And lastly, Aaron, what is the best way for this community to connect with you?
1: I am on Twitter, uh, at Texas Girl Erin. Uh, I have an email, which is Aaron at com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am Aaron Robbins. Uh, and, you know, any other way you find to get a hold of me, you can stop by my house in, uh, downtown Columbus, Ohio, too. I've always got cold beer. <laughs> Love it. And
0: for those of you listening, you can find all the links and resources Erin shared in this episode at womentakingthelead.com. And Erin, thank you so much for taking the time to inspire and enlighten us. We are all better for having met you. Thanks for having me. Before we say goodbye, I want to give a huge shout out to Millie Welsh at ZebraLub Web Solutions. She does the hosting for the Women Taking the Lead website, as well as the SEO and payment solutions. So if you need help with any of these things, contact Millie at zebralabwebsolutions.com. Again, thank you for joining me and here's to your success.